I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to welcome Professor Manfred Novak to the show today. I suspect that for many of our listeners, Professor Novak needs no introduction given his extensive work in the human rights field, but I would like to give a short summary of his main achievements. Manfred Novak is the Secretary General of the Global Campus of Human Rights in Venice, Professor of International Human Rights at Vienna University and Director of the Vienna Masters of Arts in Human Rights. He is now the Director of the newly established and worldwide unique Masters Programme in Applied Human Rights at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. He previously served in various expert functions, such as the UN Expert on Enforced Disappearances, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, a judge at the Human Rights Chamber for Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Vice Chairperson of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency. In 2016, he was appointed independent expert leading the UN Global Study on Children Deprived of Liberty. He was director of the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights at Utrecht University and of the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute of Human Rights at Vienna University as well as visiting professor at the University of Lund, the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, and at Stanford University in Palo Alto. He is the author of more than 600 publications in the field of public, international law, and human rights. Professor Novak, welcome to the Passion Factor Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. It's, it's just a huge honor and privilege to, to have you here. Hi, it's a pleasure for me to speak to you. Thank you. So a question I always start um, with with all of my guests is really sort of where it all started for you in terms of what motivated you to work in the human rights field. Uh, I must say it goes back to my to my studies. I studied law <clears throat> at Vienna University and later at Columbia University in New York. And then in both <clears throat> in both institutions, I had uh, outstanding um, people who were pioneers of international human rights. The one was Felix Yamakora, who was that time uh, chairperson of the UN Commission on Human Rights. He was a uh, special rapporteur on, on Chile, on, on South Africa, etc. Both in the European and in the international human rights system. And Louis Hankin was really a person at Columbia University who inspired me very much. So immediately after my studies, I started to work as an assistant uh, professor and later associate at the University of Vienna. And uh, I just came naturally into the field of human rights. For me, it was uh, both the international protection and the domestic protection that interested me, but in particular, the, that in the human rights field, you very quickly need to do some practice. So I was uh, also then during that time traveling quite a lot, doing all kinds of research in the field, also development, cooperation, human rights. So um, there's not one specific kind of experience that said, okay, now I'm jumping into human rights. It was gradually became my, my, my interest. And at that time, it also was for me, when I went to a conference in any other legal field, <clears throat> you were meeting colleagues, from other universities, etc. If you go to a human rights workshop or conference, you meet friends. So immediately you could combine your professional life also more with your private life. And that's up to today. Most of my 
collaborators uh, with whom I work together in the universities, so in, in other institutions in the UN, they at the same time become friends. So it's a, it's a different way of, uh, um, of, of, of dealing with an academic subject. Absolutely. And, and so I've just given a very short sort of history there of, of your incredibly impressive and amazing career there. But what, what was the, the career journey like for you to get to where you are now? I think, of course, it is important that you do research. And I, as an as an academic, I started, of course, in doing research work and really looking into um, into the the systems for the international protection of human rights, so that you get a certain name with your research. And then it is much easier to be requested by non-governmental organizations uh, for whom I did. Uh, fact-finding missions, International Alert, Amnesty International, the International Commission of Jurists. Um, and of course, so you gradually gain <coughs> practical experience. And that's when then also the international organizations, the UN, the Council of Europe, the uh, European Union and others are coming and saying, uh, would you like to work in a certain field? So it's a gradual, but it's always that the practical experiences give you a lot of knowledge that you can use in your research but also in your teaching and on the other hand of course the <clears throat> the academic research helps a lot in understanding how the systems work in practice absolutely we need that that theoretical underpinning first right before we go off and actually should do, do the practice and the two are kind of really closely aligned so as you know this podcast is for young professionals students and early career professionals who are looking to kind of take those first steps into the human rights field in your view what skills and qualities do you think you need to work in the human rights field oh, i think um, <laughs> I think the most important is uh, you, you need to be passionate about human rights. You, you need to believe uh, that this is a, a universal value system that you are standing behind. So it's also a question of attitude. But then you need a lot of optimism because the journey of human rights is always going up and down. And there are, now we are already quite, for quite a long time in a, not such a good uh, era, uh, but that you always then look further, think out of the box, have empathy. I think empathy is very, uh, is, is very important. Um, <clears throat> also patience. Um, if you have <clears throat> the feeling you immediately can change the world with human rights, then you're always frustrated and disappointed. So um, you also have to see that little, I mean, every kind of human being, not necessarily only that you save his or her life, but also whom, whom you can help to a certain extent in having his or her human rights being better protected. And, uh, and sometimes that is also a question of life and death, or of torture or not torture, uh, of finding a disappeared person somewhere. So it's, it's uh, uh, every little achievement uh, is very important. So it's not only the um, the the big the the macro systems or mega systems. I always think about Eleanor Roosevelt and what she says about human rights start in small places, right? And so it's these small incremental wins that that get us there. And I, I know what you're saying about we we can't sort of end torture overnight, but small small steps help us. Um, 
And for young professionals and students um, now, it's it's so very difficult to sort of start off in, in the, the sector. There are many human rights employers, be it non-governmental organisations, be it the UN and other intergovernmental organisations, are now asking for an advanced degree of some sort in human rights. And it would be just great to sort of have your thoughts about that. Um, is it absolutely necessary? And if so, when, in your view, is the best time to kind of go and do advanced study to take, to take that master's? I still think, I mean, in the, in the old days, there were no specific human rights studies. So it uh, was usually better if you have a law degree, uh, but not necessarily. And then uh, you kind of acquire the skills of a human rights professional um, on the job. Um, <clears throat> that's the reason why during the 1990s in particular, uh, we really started to develop specialized master courses in human rights and democracy. Um, as the Secretary General of the Global Campus of Human Rights, we are dealing, it's a network of 100 universities, we are dealing with seven master programs in all regions of the world. And the oldest one is the European one, whom we developed in the late 90s on the invitation of the European Union. The European Union said, now it's the time for sending human rights experts to the field in the huge post-conflict uh, field operations of the United Nations uh, to, to do practical human rights work. But there are no people who have those skills. So that's why we started then. Um, and uh, it's, uh, in my opinion, human rights is really a deeply interdisciplinary topic. So it doesn't matter so much whether you study literature or you study film or you study law or politics um, as a bachelor, mm -hmm. but if you can immediately afterwards um, then add a, a master in human rights, it can be a professional one-year master or a more academic two-year master, um, that helps a lot. But of course, we have many students who then work and at a certain age they say, now, I'm actually working in a field that is very close to human rights and I would like to have some academic kind of underpinning, so the better understanding. So we also have people who come when they are 50 or, or even, even older to do a master. But I think if you really want to, if, if you say already during your bachelor studies, human rights, that's really what interests me. I would add immediately afterwards uh, a, a master program and that helps you a lot today. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's really helpful for people to know that they don't have to have a law degree as, a, as an undergraduate, that they can come from different disciplines and then, as you say, take that next step to do the master's um, in, in human rights. And a PhD? Um, there are very few PhDs in the field of human rights. Of course, you can do it. I was starting or I was running a PhD school at Vienna University um, for four years. Um, and uh, of course, yeah, it's good to have highly qualified PhD academics to do academic work. But for your practical human rights work, a PhD is definitely not necessary. It's really if you want to become uh, a senior researcher, university professor, that you do a PhD. Mm -hmm. That was my, when I'm advising young professionals, I always say certainly the masters, but not necessarily, you know, not the PhD. Um, and competition is really fierce, we know, in terms of, of human rights positions and securing that sort of first entry position into the human rights sector. And 
And I'm sure, Professor Novak, you sat on lots of kind of other sides of the desk there where you're interviewing young professionals for positions. So what, in your view, makes a good, and I use it, quote unquote, human rights CV is the best way that I can explain it. So how can students sort of stand out from the crowd in terms of their how they present on paper? I think the first is international experience. Uh, and I mean, <clears throat> we're living at a time when it's more or less <clears throat> standard already in high schools that you spend a year or at least a semester somewhere <clears throat> abroad to learn a different language, a different culture, and just gain international experience. I mean, the same is with Erasmus and other programs. Uh, you should do the same during your, your bachelor studies. So to gain international experiences, that also means languages. Mm -hmm. um, of course, today, English is becoming the lingua franca, and it's the most important by far. The times are over when <coughs> French was equally important uh, in the European Union, but in the European Union, the Council of Europe, still French is very important, uh, or Spanish if you work in, in Latin America. So international experience, languages, and being uh, very proactive. So not waiting that somebody is coming and, and knocking on your door, would you like to have this job? No, you have to run. You, it, it's, it's because of competition, it's difficult, you need to do internships uh, and whether we like it or not, most of them are unpaid, mm. um, but it's good to, to gain experience in a human rights institute, in an, in an NGO, sometimes also in an international organization, um, that you see what does actually human rights work in practice look like? Is that really what interests me? Um, it, uh, I mean, there's also, if you work in the UN or in any international organization, there's a lot of bureaucratic work and uh, administrative work, etc. that you perhaps didn't expect originally when you said, I'm becoming a human rights professional. So being proactive, doing many, many different things. And very often it is just if it's only a three months internship for um, for, for the Red Cross or, or any kind of, can also be a development uh, agency or development corporation NGO, um, but to gain practical experience. And then, uh, of course, networking is very good, uh, that you know people, that people tell you, uh, now we are starting a new operation somewhere. And uh, in fact, it would be great if we, if we could get good people to, to work there. So, um, I mean, for instance, we have our Global Campus Alumni Association, which is, uh, uh, it's, it's such a network of people there's almost no country in the world where I'm coming. And at a certain point, somebody is showing up and says, hey, I was, uh, I was a student 20 years ago or 15 years ago, and uh, I had no idea that she's there. And uh, very often in high-level high level positions uh, in government or in, in IGOs. So, and of course, these networks help a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm constantly telling young people that, that, that you've got to get out there and you've got to sort of get on LinkedIn and talk to people and, and reach out to people, even if it feels difficult and uncomfortable to us, but yeah. it's something that we've got to do in, in our sector, most definitely. Um, and it kind of nicely segues on to, you know, particularly you talking about the internships there. For many young professionals, um, it really would be a dream for them, I think, to kind of work in, in the UN, um, in the inter intergovernmental organisation of the UN. 
how can they take those first steps? <laughs> what first steps can they take and how easy or difficult is, is it to secure sort of a, a, an internship in, in, the, in the UN, for example? Yeah, it's getting more and more difficult to get in, uh, in particular if you want to have a paid, uh, a paid job. Um, one way, so first of all, you never start in New York or in Geneva. If you start, you start somewhere in the field. Um, and that is also the, the right way, because that's where you really see what's the impact. The impact is not if you sit mm -hmm. in the 35th floor of the, of the headquarters in, in, in New York. That is for a later time in your, in your career. And there you have, your, your, you have the feeling you are in a huge bureaucratic institution. If you work as a <clears throat> field officer or as an intern somewhere in, uh, in, in Burkina Faso or in wherever um, and in a small team that is monitoring human rights or for instance working in a refugee camp for UNHCR for the High Commissioner for Refugees or even in a, in a, in a non-governmental uh, development organization like Oxfam or CARE or whatever who are very closely related to human rights then you really see what are the, the human rights problems in the field. It might also be tough. You might see terrible things. You might see people suffering. Uh, uh, it might be difficult from a, uh, from a physical point of view. Some human rights work is not easy. You have, uh, if you are in a, in a country um, where the, the public transport or whatever the road is, the roads are not that well developed. You have to, you might have to walk for four, four days in order to reach the, the village where you want to interview people, etc. So um, it's, it's, but that's good because there you also f learn and see and you can test yourself. Is that really what I would like to do? Um, and um, and and if if this fieldwork uh, is yeah you do it well and you are still enthusiastic for human rights then you're the right person and then you might then in the longer term get also a, a job in a in a in a in a family type station country or even in in in, in some of the the main offices etc. The second point is for the UN, UN volunteers is still a very good way of starting. Um, that is uh, an UN organization um, that is uh, training and recruiting volunteers. And they are also paying, they are not paying very well, but you can live from what you earn from UN volunteers. So it's a paid internship. Um, Another possibility is what we call JPO, the junior professional officers, but that goes via your own Ministry of Foreign Affairs and that's fairly competitive. So they do these uh, tests, uh, not regularly, but when they feel they need more people and then you are sent by your government um, as a JPO usually then to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva or, or, or also New York or, <clears throat> or Vienna. And um, there you are working then for half a year, for a year. And of course, if you are good, then many of the GPOs whom, whom I have also 
supervised a little bit or, or assisted, many of them actually uh, use this very well in getting into the job. I mean, you don't get a job for life, but you get perhaps a three months paid employment and perhaps afterwards a six months paid employment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's really tough. You, uh, in, in that field, you don't have really this security of tenure. So that takes very, very long. Um, but um, mm -hmm. some way you always find and if you are in the system, even if in the moment in the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, there's no job, there might be an, a vacancy opening in the High Commissioner for, for Refugees or in UNDP or any other of the, the, the UN agencies and departments. Yeah. I mean, UN volunteers, I, 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 that's how I went to Kosovo for a year. I sort of joined, joined them for a year. And it was very early on in my career. And I was told, get field experience and get it early on. And, it, you know, I was thrown into it in a big way, but you actually got out yeah. there. So I, I think that UN volunteers is definitely a good, a good stepping stone for, for young people to do that. Um, what about for those people who are not quite sure where they want to go. They know they want to work in human rights. They know that's where their heart lies, but they don't know whether they want to work in academia or the not-for-profit sector or international organizations. What would, how would you advise them? <laughs> um, I think it doesn't matter that much. Um, uh, if you don't, if, if you know I want to work in the field of human rights, you, you take whatever you can get. Um, <clears throat> of course, at the end of the day, there are big differences. I mean, usually you're not getting rich if you if you do human rights. So um, if you work for NGOs, very often it's uh, part-time work. It is uh, half-paid, and uh, or so that you. And even if it's if it's full-time paid, uh, it's not comparable to if you go to the business sector. Or, mm -hmm. um, so you have to know that uh, human rights is working very much in an area where you're dependent on fundraising and uh, um, uh, and the same is also in in academia uh, i mean um, the, the times when when these were extremely well-paid jobs and they immediately um, so like after world war ii when they were searching everywhere and with 28 you were already full professor etc that's that's gone so there's a huge competition so also in in the that has also to do a bit with neoliberalism and uh, so that uh, you you don't really get a long-term employment it's more if you have a four years employment is already quite a quite a lot um and and uh, without <clears throat> really i mean you can live from it but uh, it's 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 not as I said, you're, you're not getting rich. If you manage to enter an international and intergovernmental organization, then of course you're in a different league. Uh, you may start in the UN as a P2, uh, P3 then, uh, but still it's a professional job and you have a decent salary, you don't pay taxes, um, you, and, uh, and then you're in a, in a bureaucratic institution where you usually then go up the different steps in the ladder to P4, P5, and then yeah, you're already quite high and then you might have a director's job, etc. So, I mean, I have former students of mine who are now 
uh, assistant secretary generals of the United Nations. So they, they can do it and they have a very decent salary. So, uh, and the same is, for, of course, in the European Union. If you manage to get into the fundamental rights agency of the European Union, uh, you have a decent salary that is really comparable to, to, uh, to some extent to the business sector. Um, but that's not so easy to get into. So, uh, so that's why if you immediately say, I want to start in an intergovernmental organization, you will have a hard time. So it's better to, um, to start more in the, in the non-profit sector. Um, uh, but uh, many of, of um, former students and, and uh, colleagues, etc., then they joined. Uh, I mean, I was running for yeah, almost 25 years or so, um, the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute of Human Rights, and we had up to 50 people working there. And uh, you couldn't do a lot of career because we were dependent on external funding for new projects with the European Union, with whomever. Um, but you couldn't really make career in that. So many people, and I told them also, it's good if you have two, three, five years experience in the Boltzmann Institute, and that helps you to get then into a better paid job in an intergovernmental organization. And that's what many people did, actually. So. So that's suppose academic institutions and the non-profit sector are good steps to enter the human rights world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and certainly I take your point about that we don't go into this sector always for the financial kind of gain and the allure of the finances because it, it's not always the case for sure. Um, so for sort of moving on for the, to the next sort of set of questions around sort of what is life like as a human rights professional? Um, and you've had sort of such a variety of different positions there, but it would be great if you could perhaps just sort of describe a, well, maybe a typical day for you now as, as the head of the, the organization that you're with now, but then perhaps also um, a moment in, in your UN career, sort of a typical day as the former UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. Very, very yeah, for me, it's very, I have so many different kind of hats. And uh, so if I, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I am, I was just two weeks now in, in Venice. I just came back now to Vienna. Um, in Venice, I mean, the first week was really teaching. And I was teaching exactly what we are now talking about. It's human rights in the field. Um, and... That means uh, we had about 60 students, some were online, but most of them were really there in presence. And that means really, so I, I'm sitting in there the whole day, it was cold actually, um, and uh, um, because I'm partly teaching myself, partly I'm moderating when others, also online teachers are there. I look in that uh, um, that all the students who would like to to participate, uh, whether it's in the chat function or whether it's it's in in in, in reality, they can go to the microphone and, and 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 speak. So participate to be as interactive as possible, which in COVID nineteen times is very very difficult. But we we try to have the same teaching methods also online that or, or hybrid as we as we do in reality um, and then we have very practical skills workshops so you sit with a group of eight ten students and and train interviewing victims of torture or how do you re write a report about a monitoring uh, session that you had or the monitoring experience um, so these kind of things so then it's teaching and i i I'm teaching for quite some time and I still like it very much to interact with, with students is always a great, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's very rewarding. Um, 
So that's the second. I'm 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 a manager. Of course, manager is the same whether you manage a company or you manage a global campus. So that means sitting in very long meetings now, usually Zoom meetings, uh, all over the world. So we have to have these meetings at European lunchtime because the people in Buenos Aires and Lima they. They, they have to get up at five in the morning to be in the meeting and the people in Bangkok and Kathmandu, they already have, have their dinner at that time. So, so it's, it's usually between one and three that we have these global meetings. Uh, you have to prepare them. So you manage, we have yeah, staff assessments. You have to do, I, I do a lot of fundraising. I have to negotiate contracts with the European Union and other donors. Um, and uh, so it's, it's a very, I, I mean, yeah, all kind of things, having meetings with you, with the, what we call the senior management. And uh, um, so it is management. But again, as I said before, I prefer it so much to manage a global campus with 100 universities and, and, um, and, and I don't know how much stuff, but they are friends. So you're dealing in your day-to-day -day life, whether you are online or whether you are in person meetings uh, with, with friends. And, and that makes it so much more rewarding, so much more fun. Uh, and then in the evening, go, you go for a drink, but others do that as well. But, 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 but still, it's, it's a different way of identity. People identify with, uh, with the work that you're doing more than in, 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 many, in many other sectors. Now, if you are special rapporteur, I mean, I first have to say also, these expert functions are usually non-paid. <clears throat> so it means you do them next to your normal job. So I always, if you're a university professor, um, it's easier. So you can, you have more freedom uh, to, uh, yeah, to, to, to go on mission, etc. So um, I was, I was really taking notes and stock and then really assessed it. I, I came to about 70% of my time this, during these six years. I worked free of charge for the United Nations. Um, but I would certainly not regret having done that because it was a great experience. And that's how I also told my rector and, and the other people in the university bureaucracy saying, yeah, but it's a give and take. Of course, I'm not standing in the classroom when I'm coming home from a mission. I, there's a lot of work that I have to do. But at the same time, I'm benefiting so much. And it's not for me. It's the students who benefit. It's the research work that benefits. So, so that's the give and take. But if you then, so quite much time I spent on missions, of course, preparing missions, but then going on mission. If you are on mission in whatever country, it's two weeks, perhaps sometimes three weeks, very, very intensive. So it means you get up at six in the morning usually, uh, it depends, where, but then you, because you very often you have to drive quite some time. We, we always do unannounced visits to places of detention. So a prison might somewhere be remote and, and you have to drive there or, or even fly there, but uh, to go there, and then um, it's unannounced, so um, you you try to do whatever is possible that they don't know that you're coming. Um, and then you spend most of the time in detention places. That's prisons, that's police stations, that's uh, military uh, barracks, uh, that's psychiatric hospitals, that's... Uh, 
um, children's homes or old people's homes. So wherever people are deprived of liberty because they are the danger that they are ill-treated uh, or, or even tortured is, of course, much bigger. And then you, yeah, you have to be very, very careful because investigating and doing fact-finding on torture is very difficult because it's always denied. So you always have to find something that the authorities don't tell you. If I'm do fact-finding on the right to education, I go to the Minister of Education and say, can you give me all the statistics? Uh, what's the school enrollment ratio? And it's oh, only 95%, you should do better. Uh, but there's nothing hidden. Uh, these are open statistics. If I go to the Minister of Interior and say, can you give me the statistics about torture? He just gives me a strange look and say, torture is prohibited. There is no torture in our country. That's every the beginning. You you meet the ministers and or the the the, the presidents or whatever, and uh, yeah, they all tell you. Of course, you I mean you can look whatever you want, but of course we are not torturing. No? So it's always denied. So you have to find something, and that's not so easy. So you have to speak in dirty prisons uh, with uh, thirty-five degrees and wet and dirty and and whatever. You have to really make your way to those who are the most disadvantaged. So you don't, you, you're, you're entering and you don't know who are the victims of torture. You have to speak to some people and then finally they tell you, yes, in this cell in the, at the end of the corridor, I heard or I know that he has been tortured. Um, and then, so it's, it's this kind of investigative work which you have to be very careful because then you have to ensure that you can speak to this person without any prison staff watching you or listening to you, that there are no, no devices, uh, that, um, um, yeah, surveillance, etc. So you all the time have to be very, very alert. Um, and, uh, and then you go on to the next and you always have to fight against the time because in a prison with, with uh, 3,000 prisoners, then at a certain point, everybody wants to speak to you. So, because they feel now, yeah, he might help us. And, and I always have to say, no, I cannot get you out of prison even if you are innocent. Uh, that's not my job, but I would like to know whether you have, how you have been treated. So the point that I'm making is, it's very, I mean, it's really 18 hours a day that you are really working. And even when you come back at midnight to your hotel, it is very important that you then still tell your team, can we have a short debriefing? It's very important, also psychologically important, because you uh, sometimes we are splitting. You know, we are more people and the, the women go to the female prison and the, and the guys go to the male prison, whatever. And at the end, I want to know, of course, what they all experienced. What was your worst experience today or your best, your achievements? but also to see that you are, yeah, there might be people who say, I can't anymore. It was too difficult physically and emotionally exhausting. And then you say, okay, you stay tomorrow in the, in the hotel and uh, you take a swim in the pool perhaps, but for the rest, you there, there's a lot of paperwork that you have to do, your interviews you have to type into your laptop and whatever. So, but you stay here uh, and, and, and take off a day or just also relax. Um, so it is uh, a mission, is so after three weeks missions, I came home and I was really exhausted. Uh, but, but you come home and you're exhausted, but there is your family, 
uh, your kids who are happy to see you and I am happy to see them. They want something from you. Um, and at the same time, your your normal job where they say, yeah, you have gone, we're gone for three weeks. There is a lot that, um, that waits for you. So uh, it is tough. But as I said, I would, uh, I learned so much about countries, about human beings, about evil, uh, whatever that, yeah, that shapes your life very much. And that is, uh, so that's, that's the experience that you, but uh, I, I can't yeah. tell you what a typical day of me is because every day is different. Well, exactly. And so many people that I've <clears throat> interviewed for this podcast have said the very same, that, you know, no one day is alike, right, in the, as a human rights professional. It's just, um, particularly now in, in COVID times, even more sort of, more, you know, challenging. Um, and so, you know, you, you've sort of very kindly sort of shared with us about your experience um, as a UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. And it sort of makes me want to ask, you know, what has been the highlight or highlights? I'm sure there have been many in your career, but perhaps one or two things that really stay with you and resonate with you. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, again, I would have to distinguish. Uh, I mean, if you, uh, I mean, probably the best known book that I was writing is a commentary on the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. That sounds extremely boring um, and to some extent it is also because you are you're writing an uh, article for article so every every article of this treaty needs to be interpreted in terms of the travaux preparatoire so what was the, the drafting history and uh, and the practice and then of course looking into all the literature and the, the case law um, uh, but then you do your own interpretation uh, and that is fascinating. So, to be, I, I mean, by writing these books, you learn incredibly much. Um, and if such a book, which is sometimes more than a thousand pages, um, and the, the most recent of these commentaries was the second edition of a commentary on the Convention Against Torture, which is, I think, 1,500 pages or so. Um, but it is extremely rewarding. If you then finally have this book in your hand from the publisher, uh, you know this was years of heavy work and towards the end it's even the worst because you then have to, uh, yeah, to finalize it under a deadline. And, and so I, I know the first English, I did it in German, the first English translation was uh, really came out and was published and I presented it to the public during the World Conference on Human Rights, 1993 in, in Vienna and Philip Olsen and other people were participating in, 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 uh, in, yeah, in presenting it to the, to the media and to the public. So it's such a relief to have that. So, um, and that always comes again if you have a big book project. The last one was the, the, the Global Study on Children Deprived of Liberty, which is also yeah. 750 pages. And it was a very, very tough joint work. Uh, it's again very good if you then are in New York and you present it to the General Assembly of the United Nations. But more in the practical work, I think probably the most difficult job I ever had, but at the same time an extremely, yeah, it's tough, but you learn a lot was when I was, uh, I was for quite a long time in the working group and enforced disappearances. But within that, 
I did for three years during the war in Bosnia and afterwards I was expert on missing persons in the former Yugoslavia. And I soon realized, uh, yeah, of course you can go searching for the missing in internment in camps and prisoners of war camps or whatever. Yes, finally we found a few people alive. But most of those people who were missing, let's say, in Srebrenica or in, in other areas, we knew that they were simply abducted and later killed. Nevertheless, if you are the mother or the wife or the, uh, the sister or brother of a missing person, you don't give up hope. That's our nature. If, 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 if your best friends or family members disappear, you, you don't want to believe that they are dead. Even if everybody tells you, don't be so stupid, they are all, they all were killed, we know that. You say, but my son has not been killed. I, because I heard from somebody who told somebody else, who has seen somebody else, who has seen your son in whatever, a remote place in, in Serbia. Um, and that keeps you hoping. So you're always between hope and despair. And then all of a sudden there is a UN expert coming on missing persons. Of course, they put all this hope in this one person who never can live up to these hopes. But of course, the first people whom you meet are the families, the mothers of Vukova or the women of Srebrenica. Usually in Yugoslavia, the people who disappeared were men or boys and the family surviving members searching for them were, were women. Um, and they, yeah, they put your hope in and you, on the one hand, you, you have this empathy, you want to help them, but at the same time, you know that the chances that they are alive are very, very small. But you don't want to destroy their hopes. So how do you do that? Not destroying hopes, but also not creating false expectations. Um, and then, so what I said, if we really want to know, then we have to open mass graves. And we had about 300 mass graves identified by satellite in, uh, infrared um, uh, pictures um, and that was very very difficult first of all because the UN didn't really want to get into this business of, of mass graves we didn't have DNA at that time it was too expensive so what we had to do is an entomotum database so if you I, I had forensic experts who were digging up mass graves and they were uh, exhuming mortal remains and they do a post-mortem examination but then you have to match that with the antimortem data. And in order to get the antimortem data, you go to the family. So again, there is a family, you finally find them, you say, okay, your husband or your son disappeared, when? So you ask all those questions, when did it happen, etc. There they are still have hope. Ah, if I tell him, then, then, then he might find them. But then you ask other questions that you need. Uh, was a tooth missing or was a finger missing or did he have any kind of, of physical um, features that might help if we find a dead body help to identify him? And then they are usually breaking down. Either they get angry or they start crying. or they... So again, I have to explain and all the people, we had 50 interviews, so did it, I had to explain, but. I know it's very tough for you, but if we really want to know whether your son is still alive or dead, we have to go through that. And emotionally speaking, this was 
probably the most difficult. Um, and and then of course also if you if you I mean it's your forensic experts who do the practical work, but still I am there when they finally open a grave and. Uh, and then you see all this misery and all these crimes, and you see that these people were were simply killed uh, simply only because they were Muslims or, or Catholics, whatever. So that was emotionally very, very tough. Again, I learned a lot, and uh, and at the end we also achieved quite a lot because finally there was an international commission on missing persons, and now, for instance, in Srebrenica almost 7,000 of the 8,000 missing are buried in a special and that I was also involved in that, that there's a memorial site at the place ne next to this Dutch battalion, Potocari, uh, <clears throat> where, where they were taken out of. Uh, and for the families, it's again very important, particular Muslim families, that they are able to bury their loved ones at the place where they were living. So not where they have been displaced to, but they are. So it was for them important that it was in Srebrenica. Um, and that they are identified in individual graves, because then as a mother or sister, you can go there, or brother, you can go there and you can start to deal with this situation. As long as they are simply missing persons disappeared, and you don't know, are they really dead or not? You are, yeah, you're, you're lost. Um, so finally, it, it is. It helps also to do that. So and and I've done it in in other countries as well. So that is, if you wish, a highlight, but a very difficult and tough um, uh, highlight. Certainly, the special rapporteur on torture. But I was also eight years a judge in in at that time the highest court in Bosnia, where we dealt with, uh, yeah partly very, very difficult cases uh, and and being uh, being a judge, I, I, I never, I, in my own country, I've never been a judge. So I, I, I studied law, but, uh, but I never had, uh, I also am not part, met, member of the Bar Association, so I, I'm neither a practicing lawyer nor a judge, but all of a sudden I was appointed by the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe, according to the Dayton Peace Agreement, to become a judge, one of eight international judges, and then we had six Bosnian judges. But it's an incredible experience to see how you are in a human rights court where you deal also with, yeah, even we had cases about the death penalty. Can people who were sentenced to death be executed? And at the end of the day, you have a, a seven against seven decision finally that we got our that that we succeeded who were saying this is a violation of um of uh, international human rights treaties um so that the person was not executed um and and other similar cases so uh it it is also a very from a, a group dynamic point of view a very interesting um in particular in such an international church where you are together with british french german hungarian polish uh, turkish uh, other colleagues uh, who become very close because you it was one week per month for eight years uh, so you always again meet in sarajevo or in other places uh, you do also fact finding there um 
and you, you, you work for a common aim and that is restoring the rule of law in a post-conflict uh, society. Yeah, so I, I, I could go on, but I don't want to be too long. Yeah, but, but, but very profound and, and, and experiences and that certainly stay with you for some time. And, and it actually kind of brings me neatly on to the final set of questions there about the downsides and the challenges of this work, that we this work is so very tough for us from a physical point of view, from a, a psychological point of view. You know, we are dealing with the dark side of life at the end of the day and, and, and you know, difficult, difficult issues. Um, and I feel a sort of duty and a responsibility to, to, to tell young people that this is the kind of work that you might well be doing and it will affect you and it will sort of touch you in, in a way. So I suppose my question to you is, you know, what advice can you offer young professionals about that? How, to, how can we as human rights professionals take care of ourselves so that we can do our work to the best of our abilities when we get out in the yeah. field when we do it? I think the first is that you have to be aware so that human rights work is not sitting in Strasbourg or, or Geneva, uh, but the real human rights work takes place in the worst places. And that means usually either during armed conflict um, or immediately after armed conflict, after genocides, after the worst violations of human rights um, in difficult environments. So you have to ask yourself, is that really what I would like to do? Or do I have the physical and, and also emotional strengths to do that? Not everybody has, and I think, uh, I mean, I... Uh, I have deep respect for for doctors who 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 are specialized on cancer and who every day deal with cancer patients who might be dead the next day and you have to or if you are in a yeah so I feel I couldn't imagine I do that and uh, um, so uh, and, and I yeah so there are many jobs where you have to to really know you you. You, you have to deal with suffering, but at the same time, you might help them, these people, very much. You might give them again hope. You might heal them. Um, and it's similar in the, in the, in the human rights work. Um, and then, for instance, I was, and I also didn't know how, how I would react. I, I never went through a war. And for me, war was, as a child already, the worst what you can imagine. So I always said, if a war comes to my country, I'm the first one who is running simply away. I, I, I never wanted to go to the military. And I, uh, so that was for me the worst. And then all of a sudden, you do fact-finding missions or, or even, yeah, I was in the middle of the armed conflict, not only in Bosnia, in Sri Lanka, in in Nepal, in... in uh, in quite a number of countries uh, where all of a sudden, yeah, there are organizations like the International Committee of the Red Cross who only work or primarily work in armed conflict. And you can do that because to some extent, if you are driving with an ICRC vehicle, you should be protected and uh, or Médecins Sans Frontières. Or, so there are many of those organizations who are working in the middle of an armed conflict and you can do that, it's possible. And I, but I didn't know how I would react. Would I be ter terrified? And I realized, no, I just felt I have to do my job as professional as I can do it. And I realized I'm not afraid. 
I was never really afraid of myself, of my life, of my, I was afraid of my collaborators, in particular team members from the country themselves, where I felt I had to protect them and I shouldn't expose them to risks because they were much more vulnerable. But I had the feeling, even if uh, at a certain point I was arrested in, in Zimbabwe because they didn't want to let me in, I never was really afraid of, for my life or for my integrity. Uh, you have diplomatic immunity, etc., and it would be a bit strange if a government invites you as a special rapporteur and then they they, they detain you or, or torture you, whatever. So, um, but uh, but I had very critical situations, in particular with with uh, staff members, interpreters, uh, even drivers. When in Equatorial Guinea, all of a sudden we were driving into military barracks and. And they arrested my my driver, and I said I had to <clears throat> find ways and means to 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 release him again. Um, so, um, so it's partly. It's, um, I don't want to exaggerate. It's not such a dangerous work, but you also should not underestimate it. Um, uh, that's and if you have very very deep going kind of emotional experiences, you need some kind of supervision, you need uh, mentoring, you need psychological support. Um, to be frank, the UN is not particularly great in that. Um, but uh, for instance, what I told you before, when we had, I think about 50 people who, who did these interviews about the Antemortem database, we had a strict policy that latest after two weeks, uh, they uh, they would have to be um, they have to stop and then have to go under uh, psychological treatment um, or, or not treatment but supervision to see whether everything is all right and whether they could continue. Um, so that is um, that is important. Um, and on fact finding missions, as I said, we tried. You have to need you need to have a good team that's perhaps another i i was i don't know lucky or or i always recruited the right people i don't know but i always had excellent teams i still if i have different teams i have the one in in venice of the global campus and the one here where i'm sitting now at the university of vienna with the, the the current master program another one in in uh, with the global study team everywhere these are wonderful people and i always have to feel people i can for 100 percent rely on them even if i ask very much from them uh, if i ask for them to work 18 hours a day on a mission uh, they know that um, and and still we also have some good time uh, together um, so it is, but you have to be able to rely. If if you feel there's there are fights within the team and they don't really want and they want to do something else, and you, so it's also very important that you always have team meetings and you decide together. You, I mean, I'm always used that we take joint decisions, and and very often the others have simply the better arguments than me, and then we take the decision proposed by them. So. Uh, but that's important that everybody stands behind and, and you always have to take decision to say, where do we go now next? Because it's unannounced. Yeah. What is the next place that we want to visit? Uh, or 
how do we how do we uh, address the the minister of, of of national security what do we tell him and what do we don't not tell him etc we always prepare and we take a joint decision that's how we want to go um, and that makes you much stronger if you have good teams absolutely thank you for being so open and sharing your own experiences of of of, of times when it's been challenging for you um I suppose you know that that kind of the, the, the very sort of final question there, and you, you mentioned it briefly. You touched on it briefly. That whole piece around mentoring, um, and we have you know mentors at different points in our lives, professional lives, and they give us different things. But again, for me, when I'm working with young professionals and students, I, I really kind of drill home the, the importance and value of a mentor and somebody who walks in kind of parallel with us. I just wanted to kind of have your view on it. I think it's extremely important and um, in the global campus we actually start already during the, the studies. So before the students actually finalize their, um, their, their it's only a one-year master, um, we bring in people from the alumni association. So the uh, former students and often students who only graduated a year or three years ago um, and they are very important for them because there they see um, these are the people who were sitting here where I'm sitting now one year or three, three years ago, and that's where they are now. And they are helping me, um, so, so relating them to each other. They are helping me. I have so many questions which they can much better answer than I can answer them because they have the direct experience. How difficult it is for me to get a job, to get into the job. Uh, what do I have to take uh, into account? Where do I have to be careful? What should I avoid to do? Uh, all these kind of things are extremely important. And that's why what I said before, this, this network of, of uh, graduates and uh, alumni and uh, alumni is, is, is extremely important, um, but also um, during your work, I think it's always good to um, to provide um, a kind of an infrastructure when there is also individual mentoring programs uh, for people. As I said before, uh, the UN is not really providing that, um, and uh, so you have to do it yourself. Or, but we we try as much as we can to do that. Thank you so very much for sort of sharing your, your experiences with us. Do you have any final uh -huh. words of advice or pieces of wisdom to share with those that are listening and who are think, still thinking, yes, human rights is where my heart lies, where I want to go. What would be your final sort of bits of wisdom, pieces of wisdom? Um, I would say one of the problems is in the perception of the public human rights many people immediately close and say oh god these are people killed and dying and tortured and 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 whatever so human rights is very much associated with something negative with the violations of human rights but you can look at human rights ex exactly from the other side you can say human rights is the most beautiful i would say the only universally accepted value system of our times. So it, there's no religion, there is no philosophy, whatever, uh, that can really claim it's universally accepted and recognized. Human rights are. 
um, not only by governments, but also the global civil society. There is, of course, there are always people who put human rights in question, and, uh, and, uh, but uh, in general, it's a, it's a beautiful system of values. Um, and, um, and that is what you're working for. And that is extremely rewarding. The second is you're always working with human beings. Um, and that is again something that is very rewarding. You you meet them in all kinds of different situations, but you're you're working with and for human beings. Um, and uh, and as I said before, and many of them are becoming your friends. So um, it it will be difficult to really totally separate your private from your from your professional life. So it is definitely even and perhaps I'm, I might have sounded in this interview a little bit too negative or pointing at the at, at the negative sides. I think one also point is because I was talking about evil. Um, there are no evil human beings. There are only structures that are evil. I think everybody, we all have positive and negative sides. And uh, they are all the Milgram experiment or whatever have told us in, in difficult times, we all can become torturers or killers. And that's what we have seen in, in Rwanda. Nobody understands how it was possible that all of a sudden you kill your neighbor simply because you are you are incited to, to, to hatred. Um, so the point that I'm making, it's the systems. So if we can create systems that prevent at an early stage, a situation of mass incitement to hatred and violence, um, then, um, then we, we, we achieve human rights. So it is, we have to, we have to look at it from a, from a systematic point of view. Um, how would systems, and that means political systems, but not only be constructed so as to minimize the risk of major human rights violations um, most. Um, and then uh, you will see, uh, it's again a question that I had because I was probably, yeah, I was visiting so many different uh, prisons and, and prisoners that people say, but how can you have empathy? They are the worst of the worst. They have committed, uh, they were murderers, they were. And then, so you have this general, and of course, there's so much on, 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 on criminal minds and others, um, series and films and everything is about, uh, about uh, crime. Um, so you, you create a picture that these are evil individuals and then you are sitting down there and you have to develop also empathy. You have to develop a relationship of trust because otherwise this person wouldn't tell you anything. He might have whatever. I was always saying, I'm not really interested what you did. I'm interested how you are treated while you are here. Um, and, uh, and if you treat them with respect, they are not used to be that you shake hands, usually that you are, that you are addressed by your name, not just by a number or by a nickname or whatever, um, and then develop this trust and see, yeah, every human being has a history and there might be reasons that explain why he killed his wife or she killed her husband or whatever. So that explains it. So it's the point that I'm making there is not, it's not that black and white. 
um, and you can also develop empathy for people whom you perhaps don't like the most um, because human rights is for everybody uh, and that's extremely important and I think to, to, to learn that I think is also it helps you to, to kind of get rid of prejudices that you might have and, and, uh, uh, and it helps you to be as non-discriminatory as possible we all are discriminating and we all are somewhere racist and whatever, but but to at least minimize that in the way how you're dealing with other human beings. Absolutely. And, that, and I think, you know, if we work on that basis of human rights as very body, it, it will set us up very well or set up young professionals very well for their human rights journey, I would hope. Thank you so very much for your time and just for being so open, as I say, and sharing um, your own journey and your challenges and your insights, which I have no doubt will will be so valuable to, to young professionals as they start out. Thank you very much for approaching me and uh, and for for doing this interview. And um, yeah, say say hello to <laughs> to the audience, whoever <laughs> is. <laughs>